This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Glad you're with us for Calvary Online. I'm John. We're wrapping up our series today that we've called Beyond Blue. We've been in this series because we want to normalize that adversity and anxiety is something that many of us face. That depression and discouragement is a real reality in our lives. That sorrow and sadness is not out of the ordinary, but a normal part of the experience of the Christian. And maybe even especially in the lives of people of great faith. But as we normalize those realities, we also want to do our best to equip each other to confront them when they come in our lives. There are a number of ways to confront these issues, many of which are beyond the scope of what we've done during our series. It could be the competent care of a medical doctor. It could mean in your life that perhaps visits with a trained and licensed a counselor would be of help to you. And if you need recommendations in those areas, please reach out. We'd love to be able to help you. But the focus of our series, as we look to go beyond a state of being blue, has been through the lens of the Bible, learning together about how God's Word confronts grief and sorrow and how God's people have grappled with worry and despair and yet have had hope. How can we have hope right in the middle of hardship? Is it even possible? If you have yours with you, open your Bible with me to the book of Lamentations. It's in the Old Testament. Probably the easiest way for you to find it is to use the table of contents that God put in the front of your Bible. But it's after two big books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then you'll find the book of Lamentations, which is a short one. It's only five chapters, and each chapter is a poem written as a response to the traumatic events that are described in the final chapter of the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 52. The prophet Jeremiah says, In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, who served the king of Babylon, Enter Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. About 600 years before Jesus was born are the events that are described here by Jeremiah in 50, uh, 587 BC. The Babylonians invaded and then destroyed the city of Jerusalem, absolutely leveled it including the temple, which our text referred to as the house of the Lord. If you were with us this fall during our study in the book of Hebrews, you know how important the temple was, how central the house of the Lord was to God's people. It was the place of worship. It was the place where the presence of God dwelt on the earth. It was the place where the sins of the people were atoned for by the priests, and it had been completely destroyed. How could that happen? God's people had been disobeying God's commands for centuries. There were a series of kings and leaders who did what was evil in the eyes of God. And the people had been warned by the prophet Jeremiah and other prophets that if they didn't turn their hearts back to God, that 
God would punish them. And they didn't listen. They didn't heed the warnings that God had given to them over and over again. And through the Babylonians, God executed his judgment. He punished his people by destroying the city and then sending them into exile. Now, we should be careful as we read these kind of Old Testament events because oftentimes we might get it a little wrong and apply an Old Testament situation and scenario like this one to our life today. For example, we might think, well, because I'm suffering in my life, that means that God is judging me. God is punishing me. Let's all remember that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, God has punished His Son, Jesus, in our place. All of our sins were taken upon the Son of God and paid for by His work on the cross, fully and finally. And so let's not uh, confuse this story of what's happened in the Old Testament with what might be happening today and think, oh my gosh, the only reason I'm suffering or the only reason why anybody would suffer in the world is because God is punishing them. No, if you have faith in Jesus... God's punishment fell on the Son of God. That's the story of the gospel, the message of grace that is found by faith in Jesus. Now, it is true that we might experience the consequences of sin in our day-to-day life and may suffer because of them. God's clear about how we're called to live our lives. And when we make mistakes or, or when we sin, there are consequences to them. But that's different than the judgment of God, which is what was happening in this specific case. And what had occurred in this case was a brutal outcome. Before the city had been invaded and destroyed, it had been surrounded by the Babylonian army, and it was under siege for nearly two years. So the people who were still inside the walls of the city experienced the horrors of war. Death and disease were common, and then the city was destroyed, and it was devastating. This was the land that God had promised to their forefather Abraham. This was the city that the great King David had founded. This temple that had been destroyed had been built by his son Solomon. And now all of it was gone. Can you imagine the emotions of God's people? The trauma, the despondency that they must have felt, the confusion about where God was in the midst of all of this. This is where lamentations might give words to some of those feelings that we experience in our life. It's unknown who the actual author of Lamentations is. Many think, because it describes the events that Jeremiah uh, talked about, at least a response to the events that Jeremiah talked about in chapter 52, that Jeremiah is the author. But the author isn't specifically named. However, it is a response to what had happened. And as you read the words of the author of Lamentations, you can just feel what the people must have felt. Look at verses 16 through 18 of Lamentations chapter 3 to just get a flavor of what the author describes. As he's speaking about God, he says, God has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, and so I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. This is where Lamentations comes in. It's five poems responding to the destruction of the city. And as you can see just in those verses, 
It doesn't pull any punches. There's no platitudes. Lamentations has no cliches whatsoever. There is a lesson for us here. That when we're suffering, it's important to recognize what's real. Not gloss over it. Make an honest assessment of our situation and try to give words to it. To be able to say, I'm struggling, I'm depressed, I'm sad, I'm heartbroken. Recognizing what's real helps us on the road to healing. But we all know how hard it can be to describe how we're feeling when we're hurting. Lamentations gives words to the grieving. It is so raw and real in its language. And because of that, I think it's one of the most helpful books in the Bible. For those of us who are grieving, who feel pain and sorrow, but don't quite know how to give words to what we're experiencing. Even its structure, the way that it's composed, communicates something to us about suffering. Each of these five poems has 22 stanzas. And the first four poems, the first four chapters, are all acrostics or alphabetical poems. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Just like in the English alphabet, there's 26 letters. And these four poems, each in their alphabetical structure, are written that way as if to describe a theology of suffering from A to Z. All of its fullness. And its structure tries to bring order into what was chaos. But by the final chapter, the fifth one, the author abandons his previously ordered alphabetical structure as if to say, I just can't make sense anymore of what has happened. And for those of us who have walked through sorrow, know that that's often the case. Just when we think we've got it all figured out, things just seem to fall apart all over again. But there is hope. The middle chapter, chapter 3, right in the center of the book, is the one spot in Lamentations with a glimmer of hope. The author even structures the third poem uniquely. It's, it's still alphabetical, but each stanza has three lines, which all start with the same letter in Hebrew. It's, it's sort of like A-A-A-B-B-B-C-C-C, which shines a light on the central portion of this book, as if to say, look here. Find hope here, right in the center. This is a common theme in Hebrew poetry, that, that the center point is the most important part of the poem. It's like the climax. It's different than the way that we think about stories, having a climax at the very end, at the conclusion. In Hebrew, it's right in the center. And that's a reminder for us. It's possible to find hope in the middle of hardship. Here's what it says right in the center of Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 19. I remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. These verses begin by using familiar language that's used throughout Lamentations. I remember my affliction. I remember my wanderings. It's gritty language. He describes wormwood and gall. Wormwood was a bitter herb which would be um, taken and formed into a substance called gall, which would be mixed with wine as sort of a pain sedative. You might remember that Jesus was offered wine mixed with gall when he was on the cross and he refused it as if to say, I want to feel the full force of pain as I am here on the cross. 
But the taste of gall was revolting. You would almost want to spit it out, which is descriptive of the way that suffering feels. We just want to be done with it and get it out of us and move beyond those bitter feelings. But then it says, out of the blue, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This is a conscious decision by a sufferer to cling to what is true. He purposely, emphatically calls it to mind. It's like an act of will to remember what is true. Even though he may be despondent, he knows that he must call on what he can count on. When our world is crumbling, we need to bring mind, bring to mind the things that we know to be true. And that's where we find hope. And when we're in the midst of hardship, there's so many other things that we try to cling to. And we try to call on different things in the midst of hardship to help us. We might try calling on coping through substances or sex or spending money just to feel something different than the pain that we currently are experiencing. We might try to call to mind a a fantasy of a change in circumstances. Or we might actually just physically move to try to do something different to try to run away from the grief and sorrow that we're experiencing as we try to change our circumstances and then hope that things get better. We often call on cliches, especially when we're trying to help other people. I'm sure I've said so many cliches to people that have been unhelpful when they've been hurting. But there are so many that we try to call on. We we might say things like, oh, it all happened for the best. Well, did it really? Because it doesn't feel like it did. Or you should be over it by now. It's it's time to move on. Or the Lord never gives us more than we can handle. Or a cliche like, I know exactly how you feel. Really? I'm not sure that you do. Or, don't be sad. Sometimes I think we feel like our responsibility with hurting people is to help them get over their sadness, as if our job isn't done until they're happy again. But the reality is that there are many things that are worth being sad about, and sorrow is a right emotion when sorrowful things occur in our world. Many of you know that I live in the town of Superior. We were out of town when the evacuation order came in on our cell phones. And when we returned, um, we found that the house two doors down from us was destroyed by the fire. And on our adjoining street, 25 homes are absolutely leveled. A couple days after we returned, uh, our youngest son, Beckett, who's now seven, was driving around with us and we drove by a part of Louisville we hadn't seen yet. And it's particularly difficult to see. And as we drove by it, Beckett said, Mommy, this makes me really sad. That's right. When sorrowful things happen, when traumatic events occur, it is right for us to say, we are sad. And sometimes we should sit in that. And our goal as we minister to people should not be to just move them from a state of sadness to happiness. Happiness and hope are two different things. You can have hope and at the same time be sorrowful. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that we learn from the author of Lamentations. In the midst of sorrow, in the midst of sadness, in the middle of unimaginable hardship, he has hope.
So what does he call to mind? Check out verse 22 with me. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The first thing he calls to mind is that God's love never stops. Steadfast means unmoving, not wavering, steady and stable. We can count on it. It doesn't change. It doesn't ebb and flow. There's no condition to it. The love of God is a fundamental part of his character. It's who he is. He has shared love with his son and with the Holy Spirit through all of eternity. And it was out of their love that they created the world and humankind so that there might be a people that they could redeem for themselves who could share this love forever and ever, for all eternity. We can count on that. God's love never stops. But we can wonder about the love of God when life is hard. Does he still love us? How could this happen to me? Paul, in some famous verses in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, say, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can stop the love of God, even if it might feel like it. God's love never stops. And then he goes on in the second part of verse 22 to say, his mercies never come to an end. He calls this also to mind, that God's mercy never ends. It's an expression of his love for us. God cares for us. He has compassion on us. He provides for us. And he does all of it even when we don't deserve it. That's God's mercy. And there is an unlimited supply of it from God. We can never run out. His mercy never ends. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see the link there between the mercy of God. It is because of God's love, the link between mercy and the love of God. It's because of the great love with which he loved us that he is merciful to us. Now that is an example of spiritual mercy. But God is merciful to us in so many ways. And it's good to be reminded that God's mercy never ends. Because when we're hurting, maybe there's nothing we need more than mercy. And how often do we say, I, I just don't know if I can make it through today. But our author says at the beginning of verse 23 that the mercies of God are new every morning. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses, uh, verse 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's a good reminder that God's mercy will be new tomorrow. God's love never stops. God's mercy never ends. And at the end of verse 23, the author says, Great is your faithfulness. He is always faithful. Even when it doesn't feel like it. And sometimes we have to speak truth to ourselves to remind ourselves what is true about God. When it doesn't feel like it, we have to fight to remind ourselves that God is faithful. We have to call it to mind. Did you notice the change in language here in these verses? He moves from talking about the Lord in the third person to speaking to him directly. Great is 
your faithfulness, he says. We need to be reminded in the middle of hardship that God is personal. He's not distant from us. He's not disinterested, but he is near to us. Our God knows what it is to suffer. Jesus is a man of sorrows who is familiar with grief. And so we don't serve a God who is unfamiliar with pain. He is faithful with us in the midst of it. We're not alone. We need to call these things to mind in the midst of sorrow. We need to remind each other about God's love and mercy and faithfulness when we're struggling. God's love never stops. God's mercy never ends. And he is always faithful. We can hope in that, my friends. We can hope in God when we are in the midst of hardship. The author closes this stanza in verse 24 by saying, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. We can try to hope in so many different things when we suffer. But maybe the greatest lesson we learn in the midst of suffering is that we can hope in God. He is enough. Let us hope in him. Perhaps these verses are familiar to you because of the song that was inspired by them. Great is Thy Faithfulness was written by Thomas Chisholm in 1923 as he reflected back on his life. It's not a hymn like some are that was a response to like some big spiritual mountaintop experience, but rather it was written as a response to God's faithfulness to Thomas throughout a lifetime. For him, his had been a series of difficulties and disappointments. First a school teacher and then a newspaper editor, he suffered a breakdown after his mother's death and couldn't continue working. He then found Christ and became an ordained minister, but due to his poor health, he had to leave the ministry after a year. And still, near the age of 60, he wrote the words to this great hymn and later said, as he reflected upon the hymn that he had written, My income has never been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years, which has followed me on until now. But I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God, and that He has given me many wonderful displays of His providing care, which have filled me with astonishing gratefulness. God's love never stops. God's mercy never ends. He is always faithful. Our Father, we thank you for that reminder today of your unchanging character that you have always been and always will be the same. Steadfast in love, quick to be merciful, and always faithful to us. We thank you for it, God. I pray for any friend who's with us today that may be struggling, suffering, despairing, that you might call these truths to their mind. They might be reminded of your love and your mercy and your faithfulness to them, even in the midst of sorrow. We thank you, God, that as followers of Jesus, we can cling to hope in the midst of suffering. We pray for your help to do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.